When I think of the homes I grew up in, I think of Soledad Mountain. Five-bedroom homes with three-car garages, some with views of San Diego's Mission Bay, the Coronado Cays, and the ocean. Backyards large enough for fig trees and pools. I think of bookshelves side-to-side with yellow National Geographics and World Book Encyclopedias. I think of pancakes made on electric griddles in the morning just before walking to school with kids whose fathers were doctors and lawyers and whose mothers stayed home. In elementary school, I would arrive at these homes early in the morning each weekday with my mother. She was there to clean the kitchens, wash the clothes, vacuum the carpets, and mop the floors. As she began the work, off I went, walking with the neighborhood kids to Kate Sessions Elementary. One of her employers let us use her address to sign me up for school. When the school bell rang in the afternoon, I came home, a different home each day. My mother would put me to work wiping wood tables and mirrors. The end of the day smelled like mop and glow as she finished the floors and we walked backwards and out the front doors. We walked to the bus stop for a 90-minute ride to our one-bedroom apartment, plugging our noses passing by the tuna canneries. We lived in National City, in a building that faced mounds of ground-up scrap metal in a recycling yard. Across the street, Interstate 5 buzzed us to sleep. I couldn't tell anyone that I didn't live on Soledad Mountain. I'd get kicked out of school. My mom would get in trouble. But I nearly spilled the secret my last year in high school. I had a friend. His name was Jeff. He was goofy, with blonde, stringy hair, and when he laughed, he looked like a seagull. For a couple of months, Jeff and I hung out a lot. We were both trying out for the varsity soccer team. One day, he said, Hey, where do you live? Mount Soledad, I said. Wow, really? Jeff seemed impressed. Let's hang out, he said. I'll come over to your house. I was shocked. It was the first time anyone from school had invited themselves to my house like that. So casually, like a neighborhood friend. I told Jeff, okay. We walked up to 2293 Soledad Rancho, a two-story house. Wow, you have an Oldsmobile. That's nice, Jeff said, as we walked up the driveway. Yeah, it's all right, I said. Birds of Paradise on the right, the garage on the left. I turned the fake brass doorknob on the double doors. Yeah, 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 I called out. I'm here. From a different part of the house, my mom yelled back, Ya mero termino. I'm almost done. And in that moment hung a choice. I could tell Jeff the truth. That I don't really live here. That I'm undocumented. That my mother doesn't stay home. She cleans homes, including this one. I feared the practical repercussions. But to be honest, I also feared being seen as less than a house cleaner's son. And so I made my choice. I can't hang out, Jeff. I'm sorry. You have to go. I think he knew something was off. All right, he said. I closed the door behind him. It was never the same again between me and Jeff. I had come so close to letting him in. He had stepped through the door. But then I pushed him back out. It was like opening the box filled with all my struggles, my truths, only to put the lid back on. 
ever since getting shot by a police foam round at the George Floyd protest, I've noticed just how much I've done that in my life, segmenting off parts of myself. And the more I talk to people about what happened to Oscar Gomez, the more I see that it's something a lot of us Chicano student activists in the early 90s had in common. So many of us were working so hard to hold it all together. The different worlds we inhabited, our different selves, and at such high emotional expense. This episode, I want to talk about that tension, starting with my own history and the person who witnessed it all. Mi nombre correcto de México es María de Lourdes López Araujo. My 76-year-old mother, Lourdes López. I'm Adolfo Guzmán López, and this is Imperfect Paradise, the Forgotten Revolutionary. are in National City, where I grew up from the time I was about eight years old uh, until um, 1993, when I finished college and moved out. Natalie and I have pulled over a couple blocks from my mom's driveway. Even after decades in radio, I've never done a personal interview with my mother. It always felt outside the frame of my work. So we're going to go talk to my mom and talk about how they put together a life, you know, while being undocumented. If I'm being honest, though, I'm also looking for acknowledgement of the struggles we faced and also our achievements. You know, I think what I'm looking for is what she left unsaid back then. We drive the last couple of blocks to the house and park in the driveway. About a decade ago, my stepfather painted the house a light peach color with bright green trim. Hello, como están? Hola, amigo. My mother spends a lot of time at home taking care of my stepfather. I only see her every few months. Hi. Good morning, Sanchez. My mom. She's okay? Sí, sí, sí. It's my stepfather's birthday. He's 80 years old. My wife reminded me to bring him a card and a present. Oh, qué bonito. It's beautiful. Mira, Ceci. This is my husband. Hola, ¿cómo estás? Feliz cumpleaños. When I was a kid, my stepfather loomed large, tall and muscular. But physical ailments have deflated him in his older age. He's hunched over in a wheelchair, and his once booming voice has turned squeaky. He sits a few feet from us as I sit down with my mom at the table. She's put on makeup and done her hair. I start at the beginning, asking her what it was like crossing the border back when I was about six years old and we were living in Tijuana and she was working in San Diego, cleaning houses on a tourist visa. I don't think I understood the stress of what you had to go through. Mm -hmm. Was it stressful? Mucho, mucho stress. Because uh, I used to work here every day. Come and go, come and go every day. In San Diego? Every day, I'm afraid. The chance to 
take the passport. That the, that the that the customs agent would somehow like what not believe you or see. I bring up when we crossed the border for good. We came to live with one of our employers on Soledad Mountain, a single mom with three young boys. She offered my mom what seemed like a liberating arrangement: stay in her spare room in exchange for housework. See, I I was uh, mentally rest because I don't I don't wake up early and no afraid to cross the border. I have a very easy life. And I have my children with me, my, my adult. Do you remember how much she was paying you? you don't, no you pay. Know? No pay for me. No, no money. Wait a second. She wasn't paying you? No. She was just allowing you to live there? Only with no pay. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, my God. How, how, how long would you work? Like eight hours a day? or? No, no, no. Wake up. I go to the kitchen. I make the lunch for the for the kids. I work and came back from the work and at the house. Oh, oh, so you would go to another house to uh-huh. clean uh-huh. to clean another house. Mm-hmm. Okay, in the neighborhood, like really close by. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, la cena. Mm-hmm. You you would make dinner too. Oh wow, much, wow, much a lot of work after work, <laughs> a lot of work. My mother tells me the arrangement ended when the employer accused us well, really me, of eating too much of her food. I do remember loving American cereals, mac and cheese, and other things I wasn't used to. But the accusation was such an insult to my mother, she asked the man who would become my stepfather to come get us. Did you, did did I ever, I showed this to you, right? I take out my UC San Diego bachelor's degree. It's still in the faux leather thick folder. Looking at it reminds me of the problems at home. And ultimately, how I was able to overcome all that. My mother sees something else. It's my, it's my diploma from UC San Diego, my bachelor's degree in political science. This is to, to diploma. Pues no lo había visto, mijo. Me da gusto que, que lo estoy mirando. Sí, en ese entonces te lo enseñé. Sí. Pero, oh. but I haven't, I haven't shown it to you in a long time. What? What does this represent for you? What does it represent for you? It represents the victory of all my sufferings and all my tropiezos. It represents kind of a victory over all your suffering and tropiezos. Um, trips, falls, missteps. Were there a lot of tropiezos? Sí, a lot. Muchos, mijo. I show her one more thing, an award I received from the L.A. Press Club for a news feature about a critical shortage of building inspectors. Este es un premio que me dieron en el 2000 para un reportaje sobre inspectores de vivienda. Southern California Journalism Awards to place for 2000 Los Angeles Press Club. Ay, qué orgullo. You said, um, it's hard for me to repeat it. The words are difficult to say. All this is in my heart. 
all that you wanted to do, I'm achieving. You can hear just how emotional I felt to hear my mother say this. Listening to this later, I also hear us getting so close to fully opening the box of my mother's regrets and my own hurt. But we put the lid back on. I need a break, a change of scenery. Natalie and I head to the backyard. And my mom brings out a more familiar version of her affection. Ah! <laughs> see, 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 see. Yeah. Room service. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she wheels out a red cart with deviled eggs, tortilla chips, and homemade salsa. So this is like a little rolling maintenance truck that she's converted into an um, ad hoc Mexican dim sum cart. <laughs> she, she doesn't want you to go hungry. <laughs> There's no chance of that. It wasn't easy talking to my mother. This was the longest conversation like this we've had. In hearing how my successes in school, in public radio, the successes my mom dreamed of, squared with the reality of where I was coming from, I see so clearly the different worlds I had to straddle. And you know what? I had thought compartmentalizing myself like that was a weakness. But now, I'm thinking it was a necessity. It was a way of coping. And even if it's a habit I'm trying to break, I can also acknowledge what it did for me, how it helped me survive. I think Oscar felt that stretch too, between his family, who was so proud of his accomplishments, and the Chicano activism that was leading him in another direction. And I see his dad, Mr. Gomez, trying to hold these different parts of his son together. I think to keep pursuing answers about Oscar, I need to have a difficult conversation with Mr. Gomez about the investigation into his son's death. That's after the break. When I first sat down with Mr. Gomez, he gave my investigation his blessing and laid out questions that he wanted answered. Questions about what happened to his son, about how the sheriff's investigation went down, and why it wrapped up so quickly. I now know that many of those answers lie in a 150-page investigative report. I've requested it myself, but my initial request was denied. I'll keep trying, but the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office has said they would provide it to Oscar's family. So every few weeks, I've been following up with Mr. Gomez, asking if he'd request the report. I hope it can provide some of the details he's looking for. His answer is always a variation on the same theme. I'm okay with it, you know, but I mean, I still have to kind of think about it. It's difficult for me to do this, and I don't really want to. Yeah. You know, but I, I had, there's yeah. no other way. Yeah. Why don't you let me do it? I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. I got to do it myself. Every time, Mr. Gomez says he needs to think about it. And in the last few weeks, as I've been more persistent, he's become evasive. At one point, I printed out a letter addressed to the sheriff requesting the documents and drove to his house and asked him to sign it. Again, he said he'd have to think about it. I need him to make up his mind either way. And this time, 
I'm bringing reinforcements. Uh, we're at the Gomez house, and, uh, you know, we always just hang out in the front. I'm going to park right It's here. Juan Gonzalez, Oscar's childhood best friend, and the person who spent years trying to get me to investigate Oscar's dad. It's locked, so maybe I'll, I'll knock on the outside. No one answers when we knock on the door, so I sit at a table in the front yard. When Mr. Gomez comes out, I ask him to sit down so we can talk on the record. But he seems antsy. He says something he's told me before. He has trouble hearing. And he goes inside to get some shot glasses. I ask Juan, what's going on? I think if you open up, you know, if, you know, just slowly, I think he'll open up. Oh, my gosh, Juan. I hear you, but um, that's what I've tried. Mrs. Gomez sits down with me briefly. She tells me about how hard this is for her husband. At one point, he joins her. So I've got you two together. You're together for the first... No, don't go! (laughs) I turn the recorder off and try again. And this time, Mr. Gomez sits down with me for the better part of an hour. Afterwards, Juan Gonzalez and I debrief on the other side of the cypress trees on the edge of the yard. Juan, I came here tonight wanting to ask Mr. Gomez, will you request the full investigative document from the sheriffs? If yes, great. If not, why? I didn't really get anything. Yeah, this is probably your sixth attempt that I know, you know. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of like the same reason why the sheriffs don't want to unveil it. It's because they don't want to give out all the facts because once all the facts are out there, people could start covering their tracks. People will start uh, be able to say, hey, I have this alibi or, or, or no, you know, see, Oscar was a, a teenager out of control, so to speak. You know, he was a college student that was not focused and he doesn't want Oscar's ne- uh, legacy to be uh, in anything or any manner negative. And, and people have this already this positive, you know, revolutionist idea of Oscar. And but hey, Oscar was like you and I or, or any typical college student that was on the weekends having fun. What Juan is saying here adds a new dimension to Mr. Gomez's hesitation. Maybe it's not just about the trauma of revisiting this time in his life. It's also about protecting a version of Oscar that he's proud of. So when we were sitting down with Mr. Gomez, the tape was off. He was talking about friendship. He was talking to me he about... Opened up, yeah. He opened up, and he, he was telling me, talk to me as a friend. I'm talking to you as a friend, Adolfo. Mm-hmm. In, in mainstream journalism, we don't like being considered friends of the people who we interview. Mm-hmm. And I think what Mr. Gomez was saying to me was, let's treat each other as respectful human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really hit home there when he opened up. His son is not here. His son was killed by accident or by by some crime. We don't know. And so we're trying to explore that. And for him to have an empty space where he doesn't have explanation is very hurtful. He, you know, he hasn't dealt with it because he's been dealing with the formalities, the paperwork, the research, the investigation, trying to be with the level head on his shoulder, whereas all his family are grieving, crying. He feels as head of the family, he has to be their cogent and, and objective about everything and make the right and careful decisions. And so that's, that's the situation that he's in. I wonder if Mr. Gomez didn't see how his son was struggling to hold it all together. 
and how that effort was messy at times. The time I've spent with Mr. Gomez allows me to see how he's been trying to hold it all together, too. There are many parts of this undertaking that he wants to do by himself, like going to the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office and requesting the investigative documents. And he has to do that on his timeline, not ours. So that's it. I have to respect his decision. I resubmit my request to the Santa Barbara Sheriff. And I can also do my best to figure out on my own what happened to Oscar the night he died. Remember that list of names we found in Lisa's suitcase? At the bottom of the page, it says students in the apartment. Ooh, we got some names. So that's seven people plus Oscar. That's eight. That's way more than we've ever heard of before. For weeks, I've been Googling them, emailing, and writing letters. I feel like a fisherman who set up fishing poles along the edge of the pier, watching carefully for a bite. And finally, one of the poles starts to move. That's after the break. Hello? Uh, Jose? Yes. It's Adolfo Guzman Lopez. How you doing, man? Hey, hey. I really Jose Gonzalez is one of the six names on my list of people we think were in the apartment the night Oscar died in Santa Barbara. The list I got from Lisa Valencia Sherritt's briefcase. One night... When I logged onto Facebook, I saw that he replied. So in this podcast, we're touching on a lot of different topics. We're trying to, because there's so many theories out there, trying to find somebody that was in that apartment to describe what happened. I I mean, I don't really know anything that happened. At that time, I wasn't even a student anymore. Okay. I was uh, just living with a bunch of guys on Del Playa. So the names we have of the people who were in the apartment with um, Nene and Oscar are uh, David Velasco, mm-hmm. Enrique Mendoza, Leon Mendoza, mm-hmm. yourself, uh, Javier Frigero, mm-hmm. oh Anthony Oguin. That's it. Who else was there? Well, those were the roommates. And all those people that I named lived there? Yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. My understanding was that those people on the list were all gathered for a party. This is the first time I'm learning they all live together. Uh, It was a two-story duplex. Um, We lived in the downstairs in those three bedrooms. I mean, a lot of my roommates were into weed, and that's really where the whole thing went down. I'd heard that Oscar got into a fight the night he died. So what happened? And honestly, that I couldn't tell you. I wasn't there. He wasn't there? Wow. Okay. That's a letdown. But still, if Jose was roommates with Enrique, then he might have a secondhand account of what happened to Oscar. I didn't see him in the apartment that night. I know they were all partying. How do you know? How do you know that? Because they were out partying. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we did, man. You were not in the apartment that night, or you were? No, I wasn't. See, back then I was working security. At that time, I had a girlfriend. I spent a lot of time with her. Jose says one of his roommates asked him for a ride that night to get something to eat. So he swung by the house. He said, hey, uh, give me a ride to Burger King. So I took him to Burger King. Then I go got back to the house, dropped him off, and I went to her house. 
Initially, sheriff's detectives investigated Oscar's death as a homicide. No criminal charges were filed, but Jose says he was treated as a suspect. He was questioned about the Burger King run. They were trying to accuse me, and they were saying that I took him to go dump a body. I was like, what? Because I have a truck. I still have my truck. The same truck from back then? Yeah, I still have the same truck. And yeah, they, they were saying that, you know, I was like, what are you talking about? No. So we went to Burger King. Yeah. Yeah. It must have been some, Jose, to, to be brought into the sheriffs and, like, these accusations against you. Seriously. I was like, what? Yeah. It was just a really fucked up here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was good times, but wow. It was just something I was happy to get away from. Jose tells me he arrived at UC Santa Barbara with a lot of promise. Like me, he'd made his parents proud in high school. Like Oscar, he'd been a jock, a scholar-athlete, and he had a knack for math. But he never earned his college degree. When did you move away from Santa Barbara? Um, I left Santa Barbara in 96. I went there for two years I finished the last semester and was academically disqualified, so I pretty much lost my my uh, my grants. I was uh, kind of okay. I'll, I'll say straight up, I was a party guy. I was there partying. That was a party school. I it, it really was, and I was there partying, having a good time, and I didn't spend as much time at school as I pretty much wish I would have. Could think back at like how things would be different if I would have applied myself. You know, I, I was pretty smart in high school. You know, you, you growing growing up, my parents were strict, so I didn't go out much. I didn't do much. And once you get freedom, and you get friends that are old enough to buy you beer, and you got financial aid to pay for the beer, uh, I went wild. Like me, like Oscar. Jose tried to hold it together to fulfill the promise he showed in high school. But he was away, in a new environment, with a very different group of people around him. I'll tell you this, Jose. I was subject to academic disqualification for three years. I barely graduated UCSD. The last, wow. <laughs> the last quarter I was at UCSD, um, I got an A-plus for doing— I did a Chicano radio show at UCSD. Oh, wow. it wasn't, I wasn't as good as Oscar, but— I got a professor to give me four units of academic credit for that, for doing that. And that, wow. and that pushed me above a 2.0. That's cool. So I graduated with a 2.003 GPA. <laughs> I got the paper. It's true. I think I had something Jose didn't have, which was my Chicano College newspaper. And then my college radio show. Reasons that kept me in school. Jose and Oscar and I were part of a cohort of first-generation college students who were lifted into higher education. The conversations around supporting first-gen college students have expanded since then. It's not just about getting these students into college, but actually about finding out their needs and helping them get to a degree. 
Jose, Oscar, and I all stood so close to that line of making it to graduation day. I'll just say, I'll just say Jose, that, that, but I narrowly did. The opening was so, so narrow. And I went, you know, and I got through. And I know, and I'm hearing your story, and, you know, I'm hearing that you, you didn't, right? Mm, no. And what's funny is, like, that last semester, I really tried. I was just in over my head. I was just too far in the hole. I had no regrets, though. Yeah. Good for you. Good with my life. Good for you. You know, yeah, I'm ha- happily married. I have a 21 year old daughter, 10 year old son. And uh, now we've, we've happy homeowners and living the American dream, if you want to call it that. Good for you. <laughs> right? I appreciate this. This, like you describing the situation. I mean, you're describing the environment and yeah. your experience as a as a Chicano student up there, and and your connection with Nene and the others, and and you know, so that's valuable. Thank you, Jose. I appreciate right, take it. Take care, man. You too. Okay. okay. Bye bye. I feel like the rough outline I have for the night that Oscar died is starting to get filled in with details: the apartment near the bluffs, the roommates. I'm going to keep looking for the other people who were there at the apartment. Someone who saw firsthand what went down. And there's something else that I've been looking into. The bluffs around Santa Barbara and the danger that they could have posed for Oscar. So there used to not be fences back then um, in what was called like dog shit park. And so people would be running, even just messing around, and they'd run, literally run off the cliff. That's next episode. Imperfect Paradise, The Forgotten Revolutionary is written, reported, and hosted by me, Adolfo Guzman Lopez. Natalie Chudnovsky is the lead producer, and our associate producers are James Chow and Francisco Aviles Pino. Editing by Audrey Quinn. The show is a production of LAS Studios. Antonia Cerejido and Leo G are the executive producers for LAS Studios. Fact-checking by Audrey Regan. Mixing by our engineer, E. Scott Kelly. And special engineering thanks to Sean Campbell. Our music supervisor is Doris Anahi Munoz. The music is written, performed, and recorded by Joseph Quinones at Secondhand Sounds in Rialto, California. Our website, Elias.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team of Elias Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, Emily Guerin, and Leo G. Imperfect Paradise, The Forgotten Revolutionary is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.